Man, Good morning, y'all. Those uh, lights. Thank you so morning. much. On behalf of the Texas Tribune, I want to welcome you to the Texas Tribune Festival and to our panel this morning. This We're going to be talking about morning. justice in the legislature. My name is Brandy Grissom. I'm the Austin Bureau Chief for the Dallas Morning News. Our panel this morning is going to last for about an hour. We'll have about 15 minutes at the end for questions and answers. We have a whole bunch to get to this morning, so we're going to do our best to talk about guns, about drugs, about all the very important issues in criminal justice that the legislature deals with and uh, make, some, make some good headway this morning. We'll allow 15 minutes at the end, so make sure you're thinking about your questions and you'll have mics here in the middle <coughs> to use to ask those questions. We ask that you keep your phones on silent, um, but we'd love for you to tweet, so if you do tweet, please use the hashtag TTF. Before we get started, I want to just quickly introduce you to our excellent panelists this morning. We're going to have a very lively discussion. We have uh, Representative Joe Moody, a Democrat from El Paso. He's been in the legislature since 2009. Um, he represents El Paso, where he, was, he is a lawyer and was a prosecutor. He's vice chairman of the Criminal Jurisprudence Committee and serves on the General Investigating and Ethics and Homeland Security and Public Safety Committees. We have Representative Ana Hernandez, a Democrat from Houston. She's also, or she is also a lawyer, and she has been in the legislature since 2005. She serves on the Judiciary and Civil Jurisprudence and Pensions Committees. And we have Representative Dutton, also from Houston, who's also a lawyer. He's been in the House since 1985, um, and he's chairman of the Juvenile Justice and Family Issues Committee, and he also serves on the Public Education Committee. We have Representative Matt Sheehan from Plano. He's a Republican. This year was his first legislative session. He um, was a Collin County Commissioner and is now on the Criminal Jurisprudence and Defense and Veterans Affairs Committees. And not last but certainly not least, we have James White, a Republican from Hillister in East Texas, who's been in the legislature since 2011. He runs a small cattle ranch. In small. <laughs> Real small. And used Especially to be now. a high school football yeah, coach. Right. Representative White is chairman of the Corrections Committee. He serves on the Juvenile Justice and Family Issues and Emerging Issues in Law Enforcement Committees, as well as the Transportation Planning Committee. So I thought we'd first just start off with the biggest issues of the day. So this past week during the Democratic, Democratic <coughs> candidates' presidential debate, we heard a lot of talk about gun violence and gun control. Um, most of the Democratic candidates were pushing back against the NRA and calling for more gun control in the face of mass shootings that we've seen seemingly on an increasing basis. Um, in Texas, we sort of seem to be on the opposite track, proving open carry, allowing guns on campus. Um, but Texas has also been no stranger to mass shootings. In fact, there was one, one of the most memorable here on this campus in 1966. And there have been at least 12 mass shootings here in Texas just in the first seven months of this year. So I'd like to hear from the, you as panelists about what you think the legislature's role here in Texas is in going forward in terms of gun control, especially in a state, state like Texas, where the Second Amendment is so hugely important. Um, and Representative Sheehan, I thought I'd let you start us out with Great. Well, as legislators, I think we need to um, make decisions on whether the gun control works or doesn't. All right, we've been we've been talking about uh, what happened in Oregon at the community college. Uh, everybody remembers Sandy Hook. Everybody remembers Virginia Tech. Um, 
and in all those places, there were gun laws in place. Guns weren't allowed in those in those places. Uh, it was against the law to discharge uh, weapons in those places. Uh, a lot of people passed background checks that um, committed those crimes. So as a legislature, first we needed to determine how do we keep people safe? And with respect to the gun violence, uh, a lot of these incidences, to me, show that gun control doesn't work. In Oregon, we, we all talk about what happened at that community college, the devastation uh, that occurred, uh, that the gentleman that uh, committed that heinous crime. What we don't talk about that also happened in Oregon, and there was two other gun-related crimes that occurred, one in a uh, strip club uh, two years ago and one in a shopping mall a year ago. And the reason why we don't hear about that is because there was armed civilians that stopped the perpetrator. So I, personally, I think we need to get away from this idea that somebody that's mentally disturbed, that's <laughs> heading towards an elementary school with children that's going to do them harm, is going to see a sign that says no guns are allowed, turn around, get in their car and leave. That's not realistic. So um, as a legislator, I want to make sure that citizens preserve their rights to protect themselves and I think it's clear based on some of the examples in Oregon and others that an armed citizenry is really the best way to keep ourselves safe. Add. I think another part of that discussion is also not just gun control, but also other services that are provided for instance, mental health services. When you look at the situation, you look at mass shootings. Can y'all hear me? Uh, at mass shootings and other acts of violence that occur, and you immediately talk about gun control and gun laws. But we need to kind of examine that entire situation and what has led to that occurrence and what services have not been provided. And for instance, in Harris County, our county jail is considered the largest institution that provides mental health services. And so we need to look at that as well, the entire picture and not just gun laws. And we did, the legislature did take some actions. We increased funding uh, for mental health. We um, added um, beds for mental health as well, because I think we, there is a recognition that there's individuals out there that see the notoriety that comes when you commit one of these heinous acts. You get a lot of press coverage. Your social media blows up with your name. And um, I think there's a lot of people out there that want to use these types of incidences to build up their names. And I think mental health is a great priority that we need to have. Yeah, I think I think we need to be, you know, more vigilant on that because everybody turns the conversation to mental health and go, oh, well, that's what we need to do because we we're not going to legislate in the arena of, of gun control in Texas. It's very difficult. The political landscape is not probably one where a bill like that could pass. Even though the Supreme Court has said we can restrict, we can do things un, uh, within the Second Amendment framework. We can prohibit who we can legislate around who can have weapons. Uh, what kind of weapons they have and where they can carry. Those are all constitutional ways in which we can make laws. So I think where obviously is somewhere, I think that debate has been lost if you're looking for more restrictions um, and maybe what type is one that's not going to pass here in Texas. So we need to focus on the who. And the who is, are we offering um, mental health services to the extent that they're necessary in Texas? And it's great that in the last couple of sessions, there's been an increased focus on that. But um, to herald that as, as, a, as a success in the arena of mental health, I think, is, is overstating what we've done. I think we can do a whole lot more. And when you, when you focus on, on that arena, you maybe are able to, um, maybe able to keep some of these folks from getting to that breaking point. And if we're going to continue to neglect mental health in funding and not do more, than, more of that, then we're going to have more of these situations. It's just inevitable. 
Well, I, could, I, could I just Please. add one thing? I, um, as, as a senior legislator here, one of the problems that we have in Texas is that public policy is dictated in Texas generally by the courts first, then public opinion, and then the legislature is running a distant third. Um, and so when it comes to solving issues like uh, what to do about guns, I tell you, I don't believe Texas legislatures going to do anything about guns. I mean, because we've not shown an inclination to ever be out front in terms of public policy arena and making laws in regards to things. I mean, we're always catching up. We're always trying to figure out how to, how to do it after the fact. Um, and whether or not having more laws regulating guns works, you know, that's always open for debate. I, I tell people all the time that if you think everybody having a gun makes us safer. There's some places in my district, I, you know, I know everybody has a gun. I will give you one and drop you off over there and you tell me, <laughs> <laughs> and, and then you tell me whether you feel safe or not. <laughs> because I don't go over there on Saturday because I know everybody has a gun. Uh, but, but I don't think the legislature is ever going to inject itself first beyond the public policy, I mean the public itself and then the courts are probably going to be up front and dictating what happens in Texas. Ms. Grissom, thank you for that question. And um, just to my uh, chairman here, uh, I, I know another region of the state that everybody has a gun. That's <laughs> East Texas, and I feel very safe uh, because we all have a, uh, a firearm. But, but saying that, uh, as legislators, we have a uh, bifurcated constitutional mandate. Uh, no one will doubt that we have a Second Amendment and we have a similar uh, provision in our Texas Constitution. Uh, when we look at, you brought up campus carry, we have 870,000, roughly 875,000 concealed handgun licensees in the state out of 28 million. For a, uh, a, a very small population, those that have an honorable discharge from the military, other than those, uh, you must be at least 21 years old or old, older to even uh, have el eligibility for the CHL. So when you look at that, and among this subgroup, 875,000, they have a conviction rate of 0.3%. So when you look at something like campus carry, I think the question is not should we allow weapons in the classroom? I mean, I'm a former school teacher. I would rather you bring your textbook and your pen to class. But the question is, should we provide those Texans that have went through the enhanced background check, that are over 21 years of age, their identity has been authenticated against a national mental health registry, should we provide them the discretion, meaning they can, can or they'll make decision not to, carry their weapons into buildings on a college campus. I would submit to you that there are probably people walking along the mall of the campus right now with their concealed hand, handgun now. That is legal now. When we talk about these shootings on the campus, the question I have for many of my colleagues back in the uh, college academia uh, community, where was the call then in the past for lockers and enhanced security measures in the universities and the classrooms when we've had these incidents? 
why the call now when we are extending this discretion to law-abiding Texans? Fortunately, we have a whole um, panel later on today that's going to deal with campus carry. I think we could okay. <laughs> probably go in that yes, direction sir. for a long time. But the, another topic that I, what I wanted to, uh, for all of us to kind of confront now that the legislature will be dealing with almost certainly during the upcoming legislative session is violence as it regards to, in regards to police, both, both shootings by police and <coughs> shootings of police. Um, this past week, um, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick issued his interim charges, and one of the things that he asked senators to study is the issue of shootings by and of police. According to the Washington Post, 782 people nationally, including 83 in Texas, have been killed by police this year. The National Law Enforcement Memorial Fund um, says that there are 273 police officers killed this year, including 16 here in Texas. In the wake of tragic incidents this summer here in Texas, such as Sandra Bland, as well as the execution of um, Deputy Goforth in Houston, the, te the debate here has become increasingly pitched, pitting officers against civilians, particularly civilians of color. I wanted you guys to talk about how the legislature begins to discuss this very sensitive issue, very pitched issue, and, and what, if anything, legislators can do to try to stem this kind of violence. Representative Dutton, do you want to give us well, a start? Well, again, I... I You're okay as far as the sound. It's just okay. a... Um, you know, I think the, the problem is when you, when you focus on taking a look solely at what's called violence by police, I think you, I think you get off in a different direction, but I'd like to take it anyway, because I think the first thing you got to go back and take a look at our whole criminal justice system, which obviously involves police. Most of us have come now to understand that we have a fairly significant number of people who have gone through our whole criminal justice system and were yet factually innocent. What people don't focus on is what started with that was the police arresting the wrong doggone person. That's the first thing that happened. The police arrested the wrong person. Now, and then you wonder, well, wait a minute, why, why is the police arresting the wrong person? Well, when you start to take a look at how particular communities of color and their relationship with police officers. It is, it, it's interesting that in town hall meetings that I've had, I've asked people in, in my town hall meetings, how many of you know where a police officer lives? Nobody ever raises their hand. And the reason is because the police in my community is viewed as an occupying force as opposed to somebody there to protect. Even though if something happens, we're gonna call the police. But even when the police come, in many cases, they engage in activities that don't really um, help necessarily solve the situation in that community. They escalate. When it comes to police shootings, police obviously have, a, have the right under the law uh, now that to the extent that a reasonable officer would, would engage in that conduct, the police officer would, would generally Absolved of any responsibility for, uh, thank you. Absolved of any responsibility. It's on. It is on. Okay. I don't think uh, that that police get absolved of any responsibility. If you go back and you look at uh, all of the grand jury investigations of police officers 
in Dallas, for example, uh, in, in I think 40 years, there's never been a police officer um, tried and convicted of any sort of violence against person. In the statutes, for example, I found this interesting. If you assault a police officer, it's a third degree felony. If he assaults you, it's a class A misdemeanor. I never figured out why, why, the, why it shouldn't be the same for everybody. I mean, if you get assaulted by a police officer, it ought to be the same thing. But I think the legislature could do a lot more in terms of trying to ensure that police officers have better training, which is a bill I sponsored during the last session, requiring them to have more training because, you know, for somebody who's going to walk around with a gun and decide, make decisions about whether or not uh, they could end my life on the street, I want them to be the most well-trained person even than all of the doctors in the medical center in Houston. I'd rather them have as much training because in many cases, if you go back to the Sandra Bland case, I mean, the police officer didn't have to uh, get so uh, hacked off with her that, that he decided to arrest her. I found it interesting that uh, uh, Representative Moody and I were talking last night. I asked the um, DPS, for example, to give me the stats on uh, how many tickets or how many people were stopped for failing to use their signal uh, in a lane change. I was surprised, and the numbers are, I mean, I'd have them exactly right, but I think directionally they're correct. We had over 40,000 people who were stopped for failure to give a signal for a lane change. You know how many of them got tickets? 1,100. And so the question in my mind became, well, this is a, this is a statute for police officers to exercise a, um, a, a probable cause stop that allows them to go even further. But then what I also was taken back by was the fact that the people of color were far more likely to be not only stopped, but far more likely to be arrested, far more likely to be given a ticket, uh, and less likely to have been given a warning. Um, and so there, there's so many parts to this. I don't think if we attach it, attack it based on trying to solve the problem of police violence, we're going to get to the right answer. I think we're going to have to take a, a look at the 5,000-foot level and uh, step back away from it and decide how we're going to approach the whole question of law enforcement. So then how I, I, do I wonder then is one of the questions whether legislators um, limit some of that discretion that police officers have in decision making on their jobs? I, I think so. I think that's part of the part of the issue, because apparently when and, and the facts bear this out, then the more discretion police officers have, the less likely they are to use it in terms of people of color. And so if you take that away, you could do it one of two ways. You could either do it so that you take that away, or you add to, as I said before, the training requirements so that they understand that there's a question. You walk up to a, um, I had this happen to me personally, where the police officer stopped me for failing to give a signal for a lane change. Um, he walked up to the car and he said, um, I needed to see your driver's license and your proof of insurance. I said, no, sir, you need to tell me why you stopped me. And, and I said to him that, look, I can see you're a police officer because you have on a uniform, you're in the car. What you can't see is that I'm a lawyer, and I understand my <laughs> rights. 
That's what and you the conversation went really well from that point. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think that brings up a really good and in, in, in interesting topic that we've heard some discussion about this week, particularly from the lieutenant governor, about how we interact with police as civilians and whether we are respectful enough to them and showing them the deference that they deserve because their positions do put them in a lot of danger. Yeah, you know, what Harold said is 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 right when he said this is a very complex issue. And quite frankly, I, I think we as legislators need to understand we don't have the answers to everything just because we work in a dome building. Um, I think this is one of those things where we just don't have the answers. I we need to be transparent about this. Right. And some of that discussion is uncomfortable. Um, Harold's district is a whole heck of a lot dis different than mine. So I think if the legislature is to pass laws with respect to uh, controlling how a peace officer operates, that may not be the best thing. It might help uh, Harold's district, may not mine or vice versa. I think we need to recognize that some of this requires uh, a more open dialogue. Uh, I think it needs to require more transparency. Quite frankly, I think this is the, a lot of these areas, I think the community needs to get together, police officers, the community, the churches, whatever. I mean, this thing is, I think, more of a uh, symptom than by itself a problem. I think what we need to recognize. I was going to ask a question. Yeah. Why, why is it different in your district than my district in terms of law enforcement? I think because um, the, I think the reality is, there are in urban areas, right? The reality is we're experiencing a breakdown of the family that's dramatic, right? I mean, there's some areas where 70% of the children uh, don't have a father. I do a Bible study in our county jail and upwards of 90, 95% of those men don't have a father in their life, never had a parent that said they love them, doesn't think God loves them. They think they're just worthless. And so they grow in that, in that environment. What's that? You're talking about the police officers or the community? Well, I think because of that community, I think the issues with police officers manifest themselves. I don't think the police officers overall are inherently bad. Do you have some police officers that are bad? Well, of course you do. You've got accountants that are bad. You have plumbers that are bad. Well, but I don't think in people who are single-parent families are inherently bad either. But the, the reality is, right, if, if you grow up without a mom and a dad, you're six times more likely to go through the criminal justice process. You're six times more likely to go through poverty. Does that mean the problem happens to those people is a system? My point is I don't think it's so much the system, right? I think we'll make mistakes if we try to broad brush this issue. Are there some things that we need to do with the systems? Of course. We've got the Innocence Commission that was passed. We're going to look at upwards of 200 wrongly convicted individuals in the state of Texas and those. But I think we need to be transparent, and there are issues with the family structure in our urban centers. And I think if we ignore that, that's well, going to be to our I parents. wanted to bring, actually, Representative yeah, Hernandez I, I, I was agreeing with you. You said our districts are different, and the relationship <laughs> with law enforcement is different, and it is, and Harold's district is right next to mine. And I think this is more, uh, it should be addressed more at the local level. That I, I agree with you that we can't uh, pass you know, legislation for the entire state because communities are different. But, for instance, in my community, uh, we have law enforcement that's present that attends civic club meetings, that attends the senior centers, that uh, attends, we just had National Night Out, and that's what National Night Out is about, is building that trust between the community and law enforcement, because that's what's going to make a community safe. It's not law enforcement coming in, not knowing who lives at, at a certain address, not knowing what, what call they're responding to, but 
building that relationship, and you do that through events like National Night Out, like having more interaction between law enforcement and the community to know who it is that they're, they're patrolling. Because if, I know Houston's a larger city, but I've got smaller communities, smaller municipalities that have small police departments where the seniors know all the different police officers that come through their, their monthly luncheons. They know the constables. I have you know, inner city Houston and also out to Harris County. So we have a lot of uh, deputies that patrol the area that the community knows and they build a relationship that they're, you know, they'll pull over and, and chat with the, with the kids that are playing out in the street. And I think that's what we need to build more of that relationship, more trust between law enforcement and the community. Representative White, you live in a district that's much different.